Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 16, chapter verse 16. And it's uh, page 1732 in your pew Bible. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Don't kiss me. <laughs> oh, did y'all hear that? Sorry. I thought he was coming to kiss me. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> God is good <laughs> all the time. Well, you might not normally come for a Sunday evening service, but come tonight because our high school fellows are going to be leading our services this evening. And uh, let's see. Jack is going to be preaching. Jack, a bow tie might help you. It might hurt you. I don't know. Just you play it by ear, see how it goes. But come back, come back this evening at six o'clock and uh, I'm sure you're going to be very blessed uh, with them leading service. So I was talking to a friend of mine. It's been within the last year or two and he's a preacher also. He was telling me about some of the issues they were having. And, you know, every time I'd see him, I'd go, well, how are things going? Da, 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 da. And he told me, he said, well, the church has voted unanimously to leave the denomination. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, well, is that y'all proud of that? Yeah, yeah, we're happy because things that were going on were things they didn't agree with uh, that, that were happening. So he told me, he said, yeah, another preacher within his denomination came by because he heard they were going to be leaving it formally and asked him, he said, I heard you're leaving the denomination. He's like, yeah. He said, well, what are you going to be? I, I said, what did you say? I loved his answer. He said, we're just going to try and be Christians. I thought, that's it. That's it right there. You know, years ago in the uh, 18th century, there was an Anglican preacher by the name of George Whitefield. He's associated with the Methodist church. But I, I want you to read this quote of his, what he wrote. He said, uh, and of course he's, you know, having this conversation, he said, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. Any Presbyterians? No. Have you any independents or seceders? No. Have you any Methodists? No, no, no. Whom have you there? We don't know those names here. All, we, all who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. Oh, is that the case? Then God help us. God help us all to forget party names and become Christians in deed and truth. By the way, that portion, independence or seceders, those were divisions within the Presbyterian church. And if you want to take it even further, there were other divisions. There was a group called the anti-burger seceders. You go, what is that? I go, <laughs> look it up and read about it. But within all these groups were divisions among divisions, among divisions, among divisions, among divisions. And in the late 18th century, 
you have preachers in the late 18th, early 19th century. You have preachers from various groups who what they want to do is they say, you know, look at all these divisions. This is nonsense. We need to be united as Christians. And so some of them would study their scriptures and at different points in the United States, and there were some in Scotland as well, they would come to the conclusion that, you know, we just need to follow the Bible only. Now you go, I thought that's what everybody did. Not then. Then you had groups that went by, pardon me, what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you have other groups here in the United States that went by a confession called the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. And then you have the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, all these different creeds. And people look to those confessions of faith and those creeds, and they said, this is what we believe. But then what would happen? Some of their own would read those very confessions of faith and creeds and go, well, now this is right. And just like what we all do with the Bible, we read the Bible and you, you have different people come to different conclusions. And so they were hopeful and they said, if we just get rid of all these creeds, all these confessions of faith, just go by the Bible, let the Bible be our only rule for faith, then certainly we can unite. Now, there was, you probably heard the name John Wesley. John Wesley is, he's kind of crowned as one of the founders of the Methodist movement. And he appointed a fellow by the name of Thomas Koch uh, to come to America and to appoint ministers to carry out this Methodism. Methodism was actually a revival of Anglicanism. And you go, what is that? It's Church of England, okay? Um, so he... Coke came and one of the ministers he appointed in 1792 was a guy by the name of Francis Asbury. Now you may know that in Kentucky up over over yonder, like way northeast, we'll just say that, there is Asbury Theological Seminary um, and that's named after him. But anyway, there was a a minister named James O'Kelly that disagreed with him and so he formed what's called the Republican Methodist. And you go, don't think of the political party. By that, they meant free, independent Methodists. Now, here in Kentucky, in about 1804, uh, bear with me, a lot of history I know, and you're probably already going, I'm lost. Uh, I'll make a point in a second. There's a fellow by the name of Rice Haggard around Monroe County. Rice Haggard was a Republican Methodist. And he wrote this pamphlet, it's called, uh, uh, let's see, An Address to the Different Religious Societies on the Sacred Import of the Christian Name. And part of it, you, you really should look that up and read it because Rice Haggard was a guy that said, we don't need to go by any other name than Christian. And one of the arguments that he made that I really liked, he said, no wife goes by any other man's name other than her husband's. What husband would tolerate if his wife went by the name of any other fella in the community? And I thought, that's a really good argument. But I want to read a little excerpt. He says, Because unscriptural names are spurious things, being destitute of divine authority, and not only so, but they are divergent, having a tendency to disunite the body of Christ, scatter its sacred members, and cause them to bite, devour, and consume one another. 
So you have Rice Haggard, who was a Republican Methodist. You have Barton Stone, Alexander Campbell, who were Presbyterians. You have John Mulkey, who was Baptist. And all these guys were thinking the same thing. Do away with the creeds. Do away with the confessions. Follow the Bible only. And they were doing this at different parts, and they eventually would cross paths with one another. And so they suggested that Scripture be the only guide. And no more are we going to go by these confessions of faith. No more are we going to go by the Apostles' Creed or any of these other creeds. Just the Bible. And so they began diligently reading the Bible. And essentially what they came up with was what we now call Churches of Christ. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're just another denomination. That wasn't the goal. As a matter of fact, when you look, and here's how I like to explain it to people. You know, some of these folks, they can go, well, we can trace our church all the way back to this point. That's fine. Great. Great. But, you know, if I wanted to grow a Florida watermelon in Kentucky, I don't have to go to Florida and stretch a vine all the way here. You know what I have to do? I got to get the seeds. You get those seeds, you plant them here, you will have grown Florida watermelons in Kentucky. Now, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus says the seed is the Word of God. If we go by the Bible, if we follow that and plant that, you will have Christians. You will have Jesus' church. So when people say to me, well, you know, you just, your guys, they just found another denomination. I, I don't agree with that, and here's why. And if you've got pew Bibles, I have the page number up there if you want to, 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 to read those. After the exile, when Ezra and Nehemiah came together, they did not establish a new Israel, but rather they used the scriptures to restore a broken Israel. Find in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 8. It's one of those books you're like, well, uh, if you find the book of Psalms, it's two books before that on the left. I want to observe what, what, what they did because I, I think this is essentially what these guys did in the uh, uh, 18th and 19th century. Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, I'm going to make a point about this scripture in a second, and you're going to rethink your thinking. Nehemiah chapter 8, now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding in the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, the one point I want to make, and it's not consequential to this, it's, it's that if you think, boy, that's a long scripture reading, it's not from morning till midday, cool your jets. I know sometimes we have some long scripture reading, but he read from the book of the law from morning until midday. Now, you got to keep in mind, they had just returned from exile in Babylon, and they've rebuilt the walls of the city. And so you've got a people who are, some of them, it's their first time in the homeland. Some of them, they're older and they're returning to the homeland. And foremost on their mind is, why were we in exile? Well, keep reading and you'll find out. 
So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. I'm not going to read all these names. Just go down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8. So they, distinctly, they read distinctly from the book of the, in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people and said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Why do you think they wept? It's because as if, let's say it was Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, there are sections where God says, if you are obedient, this is what I'll do. If you are disobedient, here are the curses that will follow. Perhaps they heard all those blessings and curses and they came to the realization, we have not done what God told us to do. That's why we've been in exile. And it caused them to weep and to mourn. But Nehemiah and Ezra, they didn't establish a new Israel. They just used the scriptures to restore a broken Israel. So Jesus' church can be restored with Scripture, and Jesus' church is based on Him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, please. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13. In this section, Paul is pointing out how sectarianism, how division is a sin. He says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the, name, in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, they had attached themselves to different preachers. That's the one thing that I don't ever want any of you to do. Take whatever I say, weigh it, study the scriptures on your own. Don't follow me because I'm trying to point us all to Jesus. And I know, well, we, we love our preacher. And I, I love that you love me, and I love you back. But I'm not the one to follow. I promise you, I'm not the one to follow. And I don't want your faith to hinge on me. Let it be in Jesus, not in Stephen or any other preacher that can be so named. And that's essentially what sometimes sadly happens. Whenever you have a group that calls themselves a church and it revolves around a personality of one person, that is not a church, that is a cult. If a person isn't pointing you to Jesus, be very careful that you take in what they that you not take in what they say. Be very very cautious about that. So Paul didn't want either himself or Cephas or Apollos to be the ones they hook their wagon to. It's got to be Jesus. Nobody else. Don't ever say I'm of Paul. Don't ever say I'm of Apollos. 
Don't ever say I'm of anybody but Jesus Christ. So Jesus' church is restored with Scripture. Jesus' church is based on Him. Jesus' church emphasizes divine commands. Look at Mark chapter 7. If you're in 1 Corinthians, take a left. You go to Romans, Acts, John, Luke, and then Mark. Now, juxtaposed to divine commands in this passage are traditions of men. Everybody has traditions. To say that no church doesn't have... I mean, the order of our worship is a tradition. But there's a difference in a tradition that is taught on the same footing as the commands of God. So this is what we're going to see here. Mark 7, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem... Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. I didn't know you could watch a couch, wash a couch, but apparently then you could. Okay, so what is this all about? It's not about hygiene, right? We're, we're sitting here going, well, washing your hands, that's a good thing to do, right? I mean, COVID, germs, everything's going around. Everybody's hacking and coughing, right? It had nothing to do with hygiene. If you, let's say you traveled a certain distance, the rabbis taught that if you traveled a certain distance, you had to purify yourself. Or let's say you went in the marketplace, And while you were in the marketplace, let's say maybe you bumped into another Jew and you know this person or you don't, but you don't know if that person's defiled. Are they a sinner or are they cleansed in the eyes? So before you ate, you would, from the tip of your middle finger all the way to the bend of your elbow, you would wash your hands. You'd have one basin, you'd do that a couple times, now that's defiled. So you go to the second basin where there's clean water and you finish it off. That's, it's so that whatever you put into you didn't defile you. That, that was their thinking. And so when they see Jesus' disciples eat, having not done that ceremony or that rite or that ritual, they're thinking, you're sinning. Let's keep reading. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? Can you imagine Jesus in this moment? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of uh, uh, pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Now he doesn't stop there. He, he gets right to the, to the point. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. I got to tell you this. This is kind of brought up a memory. I don't know how old Bree was, but she was reading through her Bible, and she was reading through the book of Exodus. Now, when you get to Exodus 21, there's a passage that says something about like if, if a child... Uh, curses their parent or, or, you know, something like that. Take them to the, to the city gates and stone them. And she was ready. She said, Dad, 
what? Come here. And so I go, what is it? She goes, have you ever read this before? And she, and I look at it and I go, yeah, I've read that. And she goes, man, I'm sure glad we don't live like that. Yeah. Be a, <laughs> it's funny. You can laugh. It's all right. Y'all so uptight up in here, but you understand what she's saying, right? She's saying I'd have done been stoned at the city gates if that was the case. But if that were the case, probably many of us would have as well. Verse 11, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. We have all read that commandment, honor your father and mother. And I want, I want to point out something. Jesus is not reciting that commandment to children. He's reciting it to grown adults. As a matter of fact, if you read through the Gospels, every time he invokes that commandment, honor your father and your mother. As far as memory serves, he is never saying it to small children. He is saying it to grown adults. So I say all that to say that that commandment does not have an... You may be a legal adult, sweetheart, at 18. You still honor your father and your mother. It doesn't have an expiration date. You may be an adult in the eyes of the law. I remember when I turned 18, my Uncle Bo, who's a police officer, he said, well, now you can be extradited to any country for a crime you committed. And I'm like, thanks. That's a happy birthday. Good to know, Uncle Bo. But... The commandment that Moses gave, given to him by the angels there on Mount Sinai, honor your father and mother, that's a divine commandment. But they would take that and they would say, how can I, where's a loophole? Where's a loophole? And so when you declared your wealth Corban, it's, it's as if you still have control of it. You still can do with it what you want. But you're saying, oh, it's devoted to God when really you're skirting around honoring your father and mother. Because you got to think, as people, they didn't have social security. They didn't have pensions or retirements. You worked until you couldn't. And then your children, it was their responsibility to care for you as you aged. Honor your father and mother. But they would find a way to get around it so that they didn't honor their father and mother. So Jesus says, you have a divine commandment that you have made a loophole around. You're fine with not doing what Moses commanded, but washing your hands is the most important thing to you because it's a tradition of the elders. Jesus' church emphasizes divine commands. We got to be careful not to make traditions commands. And we've got to know where that line is. As to, so my, my thinking is always, if they did it, if God says do it, we do it. If God says don't do it, or if we see that people are rebuked for certain things, we don't do that. Jesus' church emphasizes divine commands. And here, I think, is probably the most important point. Jesus' church is built by him. Matthew 16, 18. Many of you could probably recite this verse verbatim without even having to look at it. 
In the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took his disciples there. And in the region where they were, there were these various shrines built like to Caesar, to Zeus, or, or, or uh, 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 Jupiter, or Juno, all the gods. And so they're standing there in that place with all those visible reminders of idolatry. And Jesus asked a question. He says, who, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, well, some say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? Okay. Now he asks a different question. Who do you say that I am? doesn't matter what people say. What do you say? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's that confession. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So ask yourself the question, whose church is this? I love it when people say, well, it's your church. I go, I don't have a church. I preach at a church, but I don't have it. It's not Stephen's church. It's Jesus' church. Big difference. It was my church. I, I do what I want. But it's not my church. I'm bound by Scripture. I'm bound by what God has taught us all. And, and moreover than that, as, as a member of this body, I'm also under the submission of our elders. They are the pastors. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a preacher. Huge difference. One preacher told a story. He says, growing up on the Atlantic coast, I spent long hours working on intricate sandcastles. Whole cities would appear beneath my hands. One year for several days in a row, I was accosted by bullies who smashed my creations. Finally, I tried an experiment. I put cinder blocks, rocks, and chunks of concrete at the base of my castles. Then I built a sand kingdom on top of the rocks. When the local bullies appeared and I disappeared, their bare feet suddenly met their match. I'm like, this is probably something I would have done. Many see the church in grave peril from various dangers, secularism, politics, heresies, and plain old sin. They forget the church is built upon a rock over which the gates of Hades shall not prevail. And that rock is the reality of what Peter confessed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us take no other name but Christian. Let us follow no one other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us make sure that what we do, how we live, what we practice is what God is well pleased with. A lot of people like to play the game of, well, if you do this or don't do that, you're going to hell. Hell is a place that exists. I believe that it exists. I don't want to go there, and I highly recommend you not as well. Because laid up for us in, the, in heaven is a place devoid of sorrow. Some of our brethren have experienced sorrow this last week and the passing of loved ones. Some may be staring at it in the near future. But there in heaven, there is no sorrow. Tears are wiped away from the eyes. My favorite part is there won't be hospices, hospitals, or funeral homes. God will be among his people, and we shall be among them, among him, rather, excuse me. 
that's the place I want to go. And you think about all the things on this earth that are wrong, that you go, man, I wish Ukraine and Russia were at peace. I wish Israel and all the people in that region were at peace. I wish brother, sister, so-and-so wasn't having to go through cancer treatments. Everything that we find wrong with the world, God writes in heaven. But I say that because, you know, I feel like some preachers try to scare people with hell. And, you know, if you know enough about it, you probably, you should be scared. But I want to draw you to the love of God. I want you to come to know the Lord and I want you to love him and let that be your motivation. Not fear of hell, but the love of a man who created the heavens and the earth, not a man, but God who created the heavens and the earth and who orders it. And, and, and everything is sustained by him. Why would he have any regard for someone such as I or you? We are his creation. We bear his image. That's how he created us. And he chose to dwell in the flesh, to die on the cross, saying to you and me, I would rather die so that you don't have to. And on the third day, he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he now rules, where he now reigns, where he is our intercessor. So I invite you to become a Christian if you're not. Now, church, wait, I don't want you to pack up because the people that are lost don't need to be distracted by your packing up. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as Peter did and as many of us do, then all you have to do is have faith in Him. That is trust. Believe in Him. Confess that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be buried with Him in baptism, where your sins are washed away and where you are adopted into the family of God. We're all going to struggle after that, but you know we can struggle together and we can do our level best to encourage one another and to be there for one another as the need presents itself. So if you have not yet obeyed that gospel, you're invited to do so by coming forward as we stand and sing.